Well, for some of you today, this may be the first time that you've heard a sermon preached from the book of Philemon. It's, it's one of the Bible's shortest books, 25 verses long. Only 2nd and 3rd John are shorter. Uh, and it's a, an obscure book, too, isn't it? Um, I, when our brother gave the, the reference, Philemon, I saw much scrambling. Like, where, where is this? Going to the glossary? I can't remember if Philemon is. It's an obscure book, but also the Christian, community is, the Christian community is not quite sure what to do with it, what to make of this book. It's sort of tucked away, or maybe, maybe it's hidden away uh, at the back of our New Testaments. And I phrase it like that because this epistle is disturbing to the modern reader. The man to whom the letter is addressed, Philemon, is a wealthy slave owner. Onesimus is his slave. And it appears that Onesimus ran away from Philemon and that he stole something from his master to finance his escape. But while Onesimus was on the lamb in Rome, he met the Apostle Paul during Paul's imprisonment there. Or Onesimus may have deliberately sought Paul out. We're not sure. But during that time, Onesimus is saved. He becomes a Christian. So, Onesimus starts running errands for the apostle and otherwise helping him out. But Paul knows that this can't continue. For one thing, he could be charged with aiding and abetting a fugitive. Uh, Legally speaking, Onesimus must go back to Philemon. Uh, And so, in this letter, Paul asks Philemon to welcome his slave back as a brother in Christ. And that's the book in a nutshell. But what's the takeaway for us? How in the world do we apply any of this to life in Toronto in 2023? And, and, does the Apostle Paul condone slavery? What I mean is, in other books... Paul tells the church not to lie, not to steal, and he speaks for God. Paul lays out how the church should be governed, and he speaks for God. He prophesies about the last days, and he speaks for God. What Paul writes to the churches is authoritative, it's binding, it transcends cultures. It's the authoritative word of God. So what about slavery? Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, two men I admire very much from the 18th century, both owned African slaves. Those men would not have looked at Paul's letter to Philemon or any other book in the whole Bible as condemning the institution. They owned their human property with a clear conscience. On the other hand, Even in the 18th century, many Christians saw Paul as an abolitionist, someone who desired to abolish slavery. They would interpret this letter in a way whereby Paul is commanding Philemon to manumit Onesimus, to set him free, to liberate him. The gospel demands nothing less. Other Christians take a kind of sort of middle ground. Uh, They say Paul's letter to Philemon is teaching the church about Christian fellowship. How our relationship with Jesus changes every relationship, even that between slave and master. Beloved, this is a difficult text. 
If you're choosing to visit us today for the first time, you picked a doozy of a Sunday. It's a difficult text. There is a great deal of subtlety and nuance, and the apostle refrains from making categorical distinctions. But despite the difficulties, God has ordained this short letter be included in the 66 books of Holy Scripture. So, what's this epistle's purpose? What's Paul asking of Philemon? And how are we today to heed this letter? What's, what's its significance for faith and practice in the year 2023? I want us to take two Sundays to consider those questions. We're going to get as far as verse 6 today. This morning, we're looking at background issues along with the letter's introduction and Paul's prayer for for, uh, Philemon. And because we're concluding with verse 6, today's message focuses more on the nature of Christian fellowship than the institution of slavery. Okay, slavery is never mentioned in the first six verses. Onesimus himself, the slave, is never mentioned. But next Sunday, Lord willing... When we come uh, to the body of the letter, verses 7 and following, we'll consider first century slavery in detail. However, the matter of tremendous importance the Lord would have us consider today, and this theme carries throughout the whole epistle, is the fellowship of faith. The fellowship of faith. It sounds great. It sounds holy. What in the world is it? What does it mean, the fellowship of faith? This is our sermon's title today, part one. Next week, Lord willing, it's part two. Well, to set things up for our first point, verses one and two, I want to ask every believer who is here today an important question. I want to ask this. Christian, are you a member of a local church? If you live in Toronto, are you an official participating baptized, meaningful member of a local assembly here in the city. Uh, Because if you are a believer, but you're not currently a member of a local church that you attend weekly, first let me just say, welcome to New City Baptist Church. Uh, But then I would add, I trust, brother, sister, that you are intentionally going about the business of fast becoming a member, of joining some church in the city that confesses Jesus Christ. And if not New City than some other church somewhere else. You need to be. You need to be investigating, making inquiries, asking questions, having coffee with a pastor, talking to other church members, attending the weekly prayer meeting, looking at church constitutions, statements of faith, church budgets, things like that. And at New City, we want you to do that. We encourage it. We're not trying to hide any of that kind of stuff. And if our church, if this church is too far of a commute for you, Um, Or if how we do church isn't a match for you, then we have lots of other Bible-believing churches in the city of Toronto that we would love to recommend. uh, So you can have, you can be a meaningful member there at that church and enjoy Christian fellowship there at that church, but not here. Every local church's polity is different. There's a slightly different way ways that churches go about inducting Christians into their membership, how you join a church, but in a rightly ordered church, in a rightly ordered church, membership is wrapped up with the church's affirmation of the validity of a person's profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Membership is wrapped up with the church's affirmation of the validity of a person's profession of faith in Christ. 
we ourselves, me, myself, and I, can say we're Christians. We can say that, but it's the local church who validates that profession of faith. Jesus has given the keys of the kingdom to the church to bind and to loose. Is that a good gospel confession? Is that a good gospel confessor? Christian, that's why a local church needs to look at your life and to hear your explanation of the gospel and how you came to believe it, how Christ came to save you. And then that local church will pronounce, you look like a Christian to us. Be baptized according to the Lord's command and join us. Participate in the Lord's Supper with us. This is our family meal. Watch over our lives and we'll watch over your life. And at that moment, a new relationship is formed. You've become part of a family, a spiritual family, a corporate relationship of oversight, submission, accountability, selfless service, and love. Folks, we'll come to our Philemon passage momentarily. I'm I'm preparing us for it. Uh, This actually is what the book of Philemon is all about. Let me say this. A local church is not a club. New City isn't a voluntary organization where participation is optional. We're not just a friendly group of people who share a common interest in religious things. And so we gather weekly or not to talk about the divine. We are all needy sinners. Needy sinners. And we've been captured by Christ to edify one another, to build one another up because godliness is a community project. And if we don't see that, if we don't believe that, if we're content being blown rangers, and that's fine. See, this is, this is why Christians can think it's fine to attend a church indefinitely without joining, without submitting to a local body. Do you think in those terms, submitting to a local assembly, a local church? They're happy to attend Sunday morning services, but they're loath to place themselves under the authority of a local congregation. This is why Christians think of getting baptized apart from joining a church. This is why Christians take the Lord's Supper without joining. It's because they view the Lord's Supper as their own private mystical experience and not as an activity for church members who are incorporated into body life together. That family meal. This is why Christians don't integrate their Monday to Saturday lives with the lives of other saints. This is why Christians assume they can make a perpetual habit of being absent from the church's gathering a few Sundays each month, or not gather with their brothers and sisters to pray. This is why Christians make major life decisions, moving, accepting a promotion, choosing a spouse, etc., without considering the effects those decisions will have on the family of relationships in the church, or without consulting the wisdom of the church's pastors and members. This is why Christians buy homes or rent apartments with scant regard for how factors such as distance and cost will affect their ability to serve their local church or give to their local church. 
It's because Christians don't realize, or they deliberately forget, that they are partly responsible for the spiritual welfare and the physical livelihood of the other members of the congregation. When one mourns, one mourns by himself. When one rejoices, one rejoices by herself. And the basic disease, right, behind all these symptoms, the disease which I admit courses through my own veins, is the assumption that we have the authority to conduct our Christian lives on our own. We have the authority to conduct our Christian lives on our own. We include the church then when and where we please. We treat the local church like a club to join or not. But it needs to cater to our convenience. And this assumption leaves us conducting our Christian lives somewhat aloof from the local body. Sure, we think, sure, I'm a member in good standing. But why in the world would I ask the church to help me think through and pray over accepting that lucrative job offer in Timmins where real estate is so cheap? And this leads us to our first point. You can see it in your bulletin. No matter is private in the church, but inevitably affects and is affected by one's brothers and sisters in the new family of God. And of course, the book of Philemon is a letter from the Greco-Roman period, so it follows the form and conventions of letters written from that time. Today, letters end with the name of the person writing. I mean, I... I don't receive letters anymore. <laughs> but back in the day, in the 80s, 90s, that was great. You actually get a letter in the mail, actually you feel excited about it, but it actually would begin, or the letter would end with the name of the person writing, sincerely, Jill, and then begin with the addressee, Dear John. In Paul's day, that was reversed. Letters began with the writer's name, in this case, Paul and his assistant, Timothy, uh, whom he's including as a courtesy, immediately followed by the name of the person to whom the letter is addressed. In this case, Philemon, his family, and the church that meets in their home. Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Appia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. And I think the first thing to note is Paul usually identifies himself uh, as an apostle in his letter's openings. That's a technical term, and it's used as it's used in the New Testament. An apostle is a messenger, but he's a special kind of messenger. Um, an apostle has seen the risen, resurrected Jesus, and he has been appointed by the resurrected Christ to preach the gospel. And a person can't be an apostle in this special New Testament sense unless those two conditions are met. Which isn't to say you won't meet all sorts of people today coming from various offshoots of the charismatic and holiness movements uh, that are, who are self-designated apostles. Have you ever met a self-designated apostle? They're out there. Um, I, I lived in Rexdale once upon a time, and pretty much... Every lamppost in that neighborhood has an advertisement for an upcoming religious conference with an apostle leading the whole shebang. But those so-called apostles are investing themselves with an authority to which they have no biblical right. 
just allow me to throw some raw meat to the uh, theological wolves here. Uh, I, w- I would argue that apostleship is the one gift that has ceased. Make of that what you will. But an apostle is a person commissioned by the resurrected Jesus himself to represent Christ, to proclaim Christ, and who serves as a foundation of the early church. But Paul doesn't call himself an apostle in verse 1, which is probably, I think, due to the personal nature of this letter. Think of it like this. Um, I'm, I'm blessed to call Victoria Reina my friend. She's my friend. So I don't sign off my emails to her. Sincerely yours, Pastor John Bell, a minister of the gospel. <laughs> and if I ever did something as pretentious as that, I want all of you to beat me with socks full of horse manure, okay? <laughs> in, in the place of apostle, Paul calls himself a prisoner in verse 1, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Because to Paul's understanding, uh, he is in prison because of and at the direction of the sovereign Christ. Nothing happens by accident. And as I said before, what's perplexed modern Christians the most in this letter is the apostles' approach to the subject of Onesimus, Philemon's runaway slave. Paul approaches that topic very diplomatically, very delicately. All throughout the letter, Paul refrains from issuing orders to Philemon about what he should do. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, it, it's striking. Um, because if we were writing this letter in 2023, that's probably the first place we would go, right? Philemon, slavery is an abomination. You dare call yourself a Christian? You must immediately free not just Philemon, but all your slaves, be they Christian or pagan. You said, wouldn't it be so helpful if Paul wrote just a few verses like that? But he doesn't. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus or an apostle command Christian slave masters to liberate their slaves. What in the world's going on? Why not? Why that is, we're going to consider more next week. Uh, But for now, we see here that Paul wants Philemon to act on his own in this matter out of love. That's the motivation, not because he's being compelled by an apostle, like Paul's twisting his arm to do something. Look at verses 8 and 9, and then verse 14. Verse 8, Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Verse 14. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. So do you see, Paul writes indirectly. He writes uh, elusively. He drops hints at what he wants Philemon, uh, Philemon to do. We don't see the bold declarations of apostolic authority we read in First and Second Corinthians. And Paul calling himself a prisoner in verse 1, rather than an apostle, this is part of his argumentative strategy. He's reminding Philemon that he's in prison. Paul sacrificed much for the sake of the gospel, so Philemon should look upon his request, which he comes to later, with sympathy.
Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. And, and notice this letter isn't addressed to Philemon alone, but also to Aphia, our sister, who's probably Philemon's wife, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, probably Philemon's son, and to the church that meets in your home. And that detail serves as the foundation for my first point. Paul expects the local assembly, the church that meets in Philemon's house, to be present when this personal letter is read aloud. There is a larger audience in view here beyond Philemon himself. This makes the issue of Philemon's runaway slave, Onesimus, and the Christian fellowship that's to exist between Onesimus and Philemon a congregational matter. In the first century, a slave who ran away from his master could legally be executed. A master might not enforce that punishment, but at the very least, a runaway slave who was caught could expect some brutal treatment. But here we have Paul writing a letter to slave master Philemon, his family, and the church that meets in their home, telling Philemon how he would like him to proceed in this matter of Onesimus, his thieving runaway slave, even though the law of the land is 100% on Philemon's side. And don't misunderstand Paul's intentions. Having this private letter read publicly is more than just a clever lawyer's tactic. This reflects, again, brothers and sisters, it reflects the corporate nature of Christianity in which no matter is private, but inevitably affects and is affected by one's brothers and sisters in the family of God. Loved ones, this is what the book of Philemon is about. Christian fellowship. Its theme is played throughout the whole epistle. Because we have been united with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that means we are in vital relationship and union with each other. Our union with Christ brings us, his redeemed people, into intimate fellowship. We're members of the same spiritual family. The tie that unites us, New City, is more intimate, it's more profound than DNA. And when looked at after death, even marriage, it's true. But how many churches have you seen where people come into the building Sunday morning, they make a beeline for their seat, they bury their nose in a bulletin. They stand up, sit down, sing to God, pray to God, hear a preached message from the Word of God before beating a hasty retreat out the door, seemingly looking to avoid any prolonged exposure to God's people. Year in, year out. The vital corporate dimension of our worshiping with God's people is lost in that kind of approach. Fellowship. I mean, real biblical fellowship is lost. I hope you find that definition of fellowship at the top of your bulletin, your, your, the sermon handout, helpful, where it says defining terms. 
Um, because fellowship today, as that word, that concept is banding about the church, roughly means friendship amongst Christians. All right, as it's bandied about the church, that's roughly what it is. Friendship amongst Christians. So if you go out for a coffee and a slice of pie and a movie with your agnostic neighbor, that's, that's friendship. But if you go out for coffee and a slice of pie and you go see a movie with a Christian, that's automatically fellowship, isn't it? That's how we kind of think about it. So after the service today, as we're drinking coffee and chatting about inflation, schooling, work, the Blue Jays' decimation by the Rangers, TIFF, the joys and tribulations of parenthood, the latest Omicron subvariant XBB 1.5, then because we're talking about those things with other believers after a church service, it's fellowship time, right? And in certain church buildings, it might even be happening in the fellowship hall, right? So it's just, it's just automatic. But in the New Testament, fellowship is often an economic term. It's an economic term. Uh, it means a committed partnership in which one's personal interests are subsumed under the common mission. And that word subsumed is important. It means to include or place within something larger or more comprehensive. So if two people in the first century, in, the, if in first century Israel, buy a barley field and start a partnership to sell barley, they've entered into a fellowship. It's a joint venture, right? The parties have poured in resources in agreement to a common goal. And their individual, their, their personal interests are then subsumed under that common mission. You see how it works? Which means one partner can't up and go on holidays in the south of France around harvest time. He can't do it. His personal interests have been subsumed by the fellowship's common mission to sell barley and to make money. That comes first. Or think of uh, the fellowship of the ring. Frodo and Sam can't just go back to the Shire as much as they would like to. They have a job to do first. In the Council of Elrond, a plan was hatched to cast the One Ring into the fires of Mount Doom in Mordor, which will destroy the Ring and end Sauron's power. Frodo and his eight companions, the Fellowship of the Ring, have that as their common goal. Drinking beer and smoking their pipes back in the Shire, that's going to have to wait. They have a job to do. Their personal interests have been subsumed by the fellowship's common mission. And at the local church level, we have Christian fellowship. Right? We have a shared vision. We have a joint venture. We have a common goal. Look at the cover of your bulletin. There it is right there. To know Christ and to make him known. New City, that slogan pretty much incorporates everything enjoined upon the church by her Lord Jesus. To know Christ through the power of Jesus' resurrection, through participation in Jesus' sufferings, becoming like Jesus in his death, and thus attaining to the resurrection from the dead, picking up our cross, dying to self-interest, to know Christ as he's revealed himself in the word. And then to make him known by evangelizing the lost, Making Jesus followers who observe all that Christ commanded, baptizing them in the name of the triune God, 
which is normally fulfilled through healthy local churches helping plant other healthy local churches. Being salt and light in a morally putrid and sinfully dark world. Brothers and sisters, our all-of-life worship, Romans 12. Our corporate worship, our mutual edification in love. Our fellowship is gospel-centered. To know Christ and to make him known. That is our shared vision. Not just New City, I mean the church all over the world. That's the shared vision, our joint venture, our common goal. All to the glory of God. And all of our personal interests are subsumed under that mission. And we all have roles to fulfill as we function and as we contribute as individual members of the same local body. What I'm getting at, what Paul's getting at, is Philemon's not allowed to act in a private capacity as the master of his Christian slave Onesimus. It's not his private business. But out, church, that's none of your affair. No, Philemon has an obligation. He must recognize that his Christian family, his Christian family, constitutes a far more fundamental consideration than the worldly relationships of household or society. And so Philemon must govern his attitude and his actions toward Onesimus on the basis of this new spiritual relationship. He's a Christian now. And as that applies to Philemon, it applies to us, New City. Our second point today concerns just one verse. Look at verse 3. Paul prays, Grace and peace to you from God our Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that, in an ultimate sense, even though it tells us nothing about the details of the situation between Philemon and Onesimus, verse 3 is probably the most important verse in the entire letter. There are a lot of details in the book of Philemon we don't fully understand, details that Paul's just assuming of his readers that they know, but which we're trying to kind of cobble together 2,000 years after the fact. But when the whole testimony of Scripture is considered one thing is crystal clear. Verse 3 is the distilled essence of Paul's theology. Because grace is the basis of the gospel, of what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. The basis is grace and peace with God is the gospel's effect. Verse 3 is the essence of the Apostle Paul's theology. It's interesting to see what he does here. In in Greco-Roman culture, you would typically end the opening of your letter and start making the transition to the body of the letter by writing greetings. So the typical opening for a letter from this time would be John to Gillian, greetings. But what Paul likes to write in place of greetings is grace and peace to you. And he writes that in every single one of his letters. Because grace and peace both touch on central gospel truths. Grace, of course, is the sole ground for our salvation from the penalty of our sin. No one deserves salvation. No one has the forgiveness of sin and salvation coming to them as their due. 
No one deserves to be reconciled to the holy God. The Bible clearly, clearly tells us that we all only deserve condemnation. We deserve eternal judgment at God's hands. But for the Christian, Jesus is condemned in our place on the cross. Our sin is forgiven in him, and we're considered righteous in him. And so this grace in verse 3, that, that's speaking to the unmerited, undeserved, saving work of God in Christ Jesus, which brings guilty sinners into the realm of peace, into a harmonious relationship with God himself. God's anger has been diverted away from us and our sin and unleashed instead in all its terrible fury on his crucified son who became sin for us. And so we have peace with God. And this is a reality, this is a hope, in which Philemon, the slave master, fully participates. Philemon has experienced the grace of God and peace with God through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's something for the Christian and non-Christian to marvel at, to marvel at. Because I think Philemon is a sort of man we can easily look down our spiritual noses at. Very, very easily. But this slave master is now himself a slave of Jesus Christ. And this fact moves Paul to pray a prayer of thanksgiving for the fellowship of faith that this man enjoys. A fellowship of faith that later in the letter Paul will use to get Philemon to think more biblically about his relationship with Onesimus. And so our third and concluding point considers this prayer of thanksgiving, verses 4 to 6. Have you ever experienced this? Uh, A non-believing friend is going through a difficult illness, or maybe they've lost a loved one. And so you, as a Christian, you say to them, my friend, I'm, I'm praying for you. And more likely than not, that person's going to be glad to hear that. Not because they believe in the efficacy of prayer or even that there's necessarily a God who hears our prayers and can do anything about them, but because they know that prayer is significant for you. They interpret you praying as an expression of your love and concern for them, which it is. And they probably have all kinds of spiritual friends, spiritual friends sending them uh, thoughts, prayers, positive vibes over Facebook and everything else, but not with the strict formalism of praying to the triune God of the universe in the name of the eternal Son, Jesus Christ, the great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for his people in the power of the Spirit and in accordance with God's sovereign will. Because when you pray, that is what you are doing. What I'm getting at is prayer is considered to be a good thing in Canada as long as it's part of a nebulous, generic spirituality. Having a mantra, meditating, praying to the God, small g, God of your understanding, that sort of stuff is looked upon as being very, very different compared to the belief that there are strict parameters for prayer that the one God of this universe finds acceptable. All praying presupposes an underlying theology. All Praying presupposes an underlying theology. So if we pray in a way that presupposes God is the great vending machine in the sky, 
who pours forth nothing but blessing for prayers offered to him in faith. That says a lot about our theology. It says a lot about our view of the person of God and our relationship to him. And when we give thanks to God for our material blessings and little else, there's a theology at work there too, and it's a bad theology. When we consider Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for Philemon, we see his theology at work. Brothers and sisters, this is the prayer of a godly, spiritually mature Christian. And I believe the Lord preserves the Apostle Paul's prayers in Holy Scripture that his church might learn how to pray. It's good to use the Apostle Paul's prayers as a guide to help us. I've been saying this in our times at prayer meeting on Thursdays. Now, to pray properly, that isn't an easy matter. It's hard to pray. It's one of the hardest tasks in the world. But we need to be careful. We will have failed to learn what God is teaching us about prayer if we use Paul's prayers simply as a theological template for our own, divorced from the heart affections that are propelling his prayers. What we read here isn't the kind of prayer we can just imitate by memorizing an outline and working our way through it by rote. It's not going to work. The affections of Paul's hearts are very much engaged in verses 4 to 6. This prayer is coming out of the overflow of Paul's heart. And if the love for God's people isn't there, our intercessory prayers are just a pretentious shell, a meaningless ritual. Love is the fuel that propels intercessory prayer. Never forget that. This is all part of our union together in one body. Verse 4, Paul writes, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. Wouldn't that just be a great thing to hear somebody from New City say to you? Victoria, I always thank God as I remember you in my prayers. Wow, you just made my day. (laughs) Verse 5, because I hear about your love for all his people. And your faith in the Lord Jesus. It's probably been at least three years since Paul's seen Philemon, but he continues to hear positive reports about Philemon's relationship to Christ and his commitment to other believers. And for this, Paul thanks God. And we should do the same. When we intercede on behalf of a particular brother or sister, either at our church prayer meetings or during our private times of prayer, we should thank the Lord. We should thank him for their love demonstrated to other believers. And then I think we should actually tell them that we're doing that. It's very encouraging. Which means we need to be looking for that pattern of behavior in their life, actually on the lookout for it in your fellow brothers and sisters at New City, which also presupposes we know our brothers and sisters at New City. We're in their lives. And we should thank God for their saving faith in the Lord Jesus because that saving faith isn't something that they whipped up by themselves. It's the gift of God. And so we thank God for the very faith he's granted our brother, our sister. New City, that's what we do as a community living in loving fellowship. That's what we do. I was reflecting this past weekend. Uh, It's been a a year and a bit since I baptized Angela and a, a year since I baptized Christina. Last summer, I didn't really know Angela or Christina that well. Uh, I baptized them, uh, but I didn't know them personally. Now I can honestly say that I love them both. I love them both. 
by God's grace, that's what a year of real fellowship has affected in my heart. The early church father, Jerome, records, uh, records that when John the Apostle was a very old man living in Ephesus, he had to be carried into the church in the arms of his disciples. At these meetings, it was his custom to repeat over and over again as he's being carried, carried physically by his, apostles, by his disciples, little children, love one another. Little children, love one another. After a time, his disciples grew weary of this. It kind of sounds like, are you going senile? Like, what's, you know? Master, why do you always say the same words? It's the Lord's command, he replied. John 15, 12. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Little children, love one another. You see, our love for one another has a tremendous testimonial impact for the gospel. It's tremendous. Love in an urban church, in a city as cosmopolitan as Toronto, is startling to those around us. The Church of Christ is made up of people from different cultures, races, with different food preferences, social customs, education, intellect, age, health, both rich and poor. Two believers can be polar opposites on all of those fronts. And still, there is a sincere bond of love, one for another, each putting the other first in their estimation and in their conduct, all because of that bond of fellowship, our union with Jesus Christ. And when we see that love in the church, we need to follow Paul's example and thank God for it. A church that is defying cultural expectations by uniting meaningfully across demographic, socioeconomic, and racial divides. Brothers and sisters, exposing someone, exposing unbelieving outsiders to that compelling community of the gathered church has great power, great power. Paul continues his fellowship theme in verse 6, our last verse today. I pray that your partnership with us, that is, the mutual participation, the fellowship, the Greek word there is koinonia. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. I, th- I think that's Paul sort of like loading his cannon, all right? And he's going to be using this later on throughout the, throughout the text. But he, in other words, what he's saying is this, Philemon, I pray that you will put into action the loving generosity that comes from our faith, the deep love, the deep fellowship that comes from being part of the Christian community, being part of the church, as you understand and as you experience all the good things that we have in Christ Jesus. Now, undoubtedly, Paul is thinking of Philemon's generosity of fellowship being activated in reference to the matter of his runaway slave Onesimus. But he doesn't come right out and say it, does he? This, this is the, the set, right, to use a volleyball term. We're, we're seeing Paul's diplomatic approach again. He speaks of deepening 
Philemon's understanding, his practical, experiential knowledge of what it means to live in Christian community. Let me give an example. In our own culture, uh, when we're engaged to be married, anybody here who's engaged, by the way? No? Okay, well, uh, in our own culture, all right, <laughs> when we're engaged to be married, we start uh, to get an understanding, a practical, experiential knowledge of what it means to be married when it comes to our finances. All right? Guys, when you're dating, if your girlfriend's car breaks down, and if you're not a mechanic-type guy that fixes cars by yourself, then she's got to take the car to the garage, and she's going to pay for those repairs herself, right? I mean, welcome to adulting. (laughs) Uh, When I was dating Jill and then engaged to Jill. Jill was driving a beater of a car. And uh, it would break down often. It was like, hey, hon, sorry. It's like, hey, it's not. <laughs> when we were dating, that's what I was saying. Hey, it's, it's, you know, it's, your, it's your problem to deal with. But the moment you get engaged, right, those lines get blurred. Right? You start consulting with the other person before making large purchases. I mean, should we fix the car or just wait until we're married and pool our resources and actually buy a new car? You've got to start thinking along those lines. We're not, you know, you're not married yet, but soon you will be. And if one of you is racking up massive credit card debt, it will soon be the debt of the other person, your future spouse. And they will incur the responsibility. And vice versa, if your fiancé has a tuition debt, guess what? It's your debt now, buddy. (laughs) You incur that responsibility. But the benefits, right? The benefits of being married to the man or the woman of your dreams makes it all worthwhile, right? In theory. (laughs) Uh, Beloved, when we repent and trust in Christ for our salvation we become identified with one another in intimate association. We're joined in a spiritual union in Christ through the Holy Spirit, and we all incur the benefits and the responsibilities of that communion. The benefits and the responsibilities. Paul's letter to Philemon is fundamentally about those responsibilities. Paul... Onesimus, Philemon, and the church that meets in his home have all been bound together in faith. And they have been forced by circumstances to think through the radical implications of their fellowship, their koinonia. And so Paul prays, Philemon, I pray that you will put into action the loving generosity that comes from our faith the deep love, the deep fellowship that comes from being part of the Christian church. As you understand and experience all the good things that we have in Christ. Now, how that gets worked out, how Philemon's generosity of fellowship should be activated in this master-slave relationship, we'll consider next week. This sermon ends on a cliffhanger. (laughs) <laughs> but I'll just, I'll just leave this with us, New City. Just as the blessings and responsibilities of Christian fellowship has radical implications for this Christian slave master and his Christian slave, it's no less radical for us. 
So come back next week and find out how. Amen.